Well, today we come to the end of our study through the book of James. You might think we finished it in our last study. We didn't. I had this one Sunday left, and I wanted to accomplish a couple of things. For one, I wanted to go back and review some of the high points of this study within the proper context as we kind of do a flyover. Uh, And uh, then secondly, what I want to do is talk about the death of James. In fact, I'm going to be able to do something today that expositors in the book of James and through it have not been able to talk about until just a few years ago. We'll get there eventually. Now, there's a phrase that appears 15 times in the letter about 15 times, and it sets our study today as a guideline in this flyover. It's a term of affection and connection. It's the term or word brethren. Now, you've read it with me several times as we've studied this letter. This is a a word that speaks of his uh, devotion and love for the assembly. Depending on the context, Adelphoi can be inclusive, and the context's have allowed that in this letter so that you could actually translate this for all of the believers in the assembly, translated into our modern vocabulary. You could easily render it brothers and sisters. In fact, James will often use the possessive pronoun, my brothers and sisters. Even when James gets onto them and onto us, and he has, hasn't he? Wow, sometimes he has just taken that club and, 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 and clocked us. Uh, we need to understand, though, that he's coming to this discussion as a member of the family, and that really changes everything and, and uh, gives us a context of his heart, and I want to make sure we, we point that out. That's one of the reasons he can shoot so straight. This is family talk. He's talking to his children, as it were, in the faith, and, and, and you do that as a parent. If you have children, you talk to your children differently than children in the neighborhood. In fact, you let children in the neighborhood get away with things that your children can't get away with, right? You go to a restaurant, you don't say to the kid sitting in the booth next to you, you know, chew with your mouth closed and put your napkin in your lap, do you? Do you? <laughs> your kids are different, and you tell them all that. And then A to Z, that's part of the exhaustion of parenting, Right? You got you to take care and deliver and teach and instruct and, and all of those things between A to Z. I love, I love the story I read this week of one little boy who was talking to his friend and told him, I'm really worried about my parents. The other kid said, well, why? He said, well, my dad really works hard every day, so I won't need anything. He's saving money for my car and my education. And my mother works hard every single day, washing, cleaning. She cooks for me, so I'm taken care of, and I'm worried about him. The other kid said, what do you got to worry about? And the boy responded, well, I'm afraid I might try to escape. (laughs) Maybe some of you have had that thought. You know, there's some kids in my cul-de-sac that I hear nearly every Saturday when I spend about 12, 14 hours writing in preparation, just sort of the conclusion of of my study. There are kids all in the same family. I can literally hear them out there on Saturday yelling and screaming at the top of their lungs at each other. And there have been times when I've been tempted. In fact, one time I did get up from my chair. I walked out. I actually opened the front door and I thought, no. And I went back in. But I've been tempted to go out on the front porch and, and yell back up the street at them, would you be quiet? I'm working on a sermon in here. 
and it's on patience. <laughs> so be quiet now. Do it now. Well, I don't. I, I've shut the door. Well, they're not my kids. They're not my kids. In fact, uh, they don't even come to church here. I haven't invited them. <laughs> don't have the courage. See, James, he's talking to us like family. He has come out on the front porch. In fact, he's walked across our front lawn into our living room, and he said, okay, now gather around. And there have been times when he slapped his knee in frustration and pounded the arm of his chair in righteous indignation, and sometimes he's pointed his finger in our face. But I I want you to understand, and 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 I think I may not have presented it very clearly as we've gone through this, that it's not so much him saying, let me tell you a thing or two. It's more like, listen, you got to get this right. We've got to live out our faith. Everybody in the family, we're all in this together. We need to grow up. Brothers and sisters, this is the way we've got to live. And what I've done is I've gone back this week and I've just reviewed the 15 times or so that this word brethren appears and I've summarized them into several different subjects or categories. We don't have time to review all of them at length, but I'll at least give you the categories and make a few comments. We'll take a closer look at some of them to make sure we got the point. Number one is this. Uh, James delivers family talk about trials. You remember as he opened his letter, in fact, he might turn to chapter one again. Once he gets past the fact that he introduces himself as simply the slave of God and Jesus Christ, and I love that that, that description. He's satisfied with that. He says, he cuts right to it, consider it all joy, my brethren. There, he, there it is. My brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, he cuts right to the chase and he tells us the truth about trouble. Trouble in that one freighted phrase, he, he informs us that it, they're inevitable. You notice it doesn't read if when you encounter, but, but when, not if, when. He also says in that phrase that they come in various sizes and, and shapes. The word various literally means multicolored. Listen, you don't deal with just one problem as a Christian. You multitask problems as a Christian. They are inevitable. They're unlimited. He also says they're unexpected. The word for encounter has the idea of suddenness. Suddenly, you encounter it. Added to that idea is the dramatic use of the word for trials, which transliterated gives us the word pirates. Pirates. We talked about that if you were with us. The pirates have suddenly shown up. They've swooped down on your vessel, and you were just sailing along. And here they are, and you're unarmed, and you're unprepared, and you're unsuspecting. James says, consider it all joy that is counted a joyful thing to encounter the pirates of suffering. What does he mean? Well, he doesn't mean that trials are happy things. He doesn't mean to plaster on a cheesy smile and offer the pirates tea and cookies. That's not what he's saying. He's saying to face your tribulations with the perspective that God, of whom you are a slave has allowed them to board your ship in order to shape up your character. 
so that it is of Christ's. And when we are the slaves of God, that is our greatest pleasure and joy, to become more like him. And so we talked about the fact that you don't get to pick which trials you deal with, do you? God does that for you. They just arrive. You don't get to pick your crosses. You do get to choose your responses. That's family talk about trouble. Secondly, James delivers a little family talk about temptation. In verse uh, 13 of chapter 1, James again writes with the realism of the Christian experience, which we have come to appreciate. Again, it isn't if you experience temptation, but when. And James pulls the mask off it, and he takes you from the beginning of it to the end of it, and he says, here's what it's like. Here's the downward spiral. Temptation comes. It's a worm on a hook. Nothing sinful about temptation. Just resist it. Don't bite. You begin to lust after it. You begin to desire it. You begin to want it. And that leads, it births sin. And sin's legacy is destruction. And James is writing to the brothers and sisters. So he's saying, effectively, when you get out of bed in the morning, you will face temptation. It will come to you in the form of a test of integrity or honesty or purity or courage or faith or whatever. James effectively warns his brothers and sisters with the truth that temptation will never, ever leave you alone. He wants us to be ready. Then James gives us a family talk about truth in verse 19. Responding to truth, James writes, we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And this is often misinterpreted. The context is our response to the truth of Scripture, which James will then describe. We should be quick to hear it. We should be slow to talk back to it. We should be slow to become angry with it. It's just a mirror, and it reflects who we really are. So get over it, submit to it, confess in light of it, respond to it, and live it. James then delivers some family talk about favoritism. In chapter 2, notice verse 1, My brethren, Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism that is partiality or prejudice. And he spends quite a bit of time talking about what we whittle down to one little sentence. Don't be a snob. Social cliques, status, favoritism, classism, racism has absolutely nothing to do with genuine Christianity. There's no such thing in the church as who's in and who's out. It's not how brothers and sisters are supposed to act. In fact, look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? In other words, didn't God choose those that society looks down on? So don't bring your classism And with that, every other form of partiality, favoritism, racism, don't bring that from the world in here. 
This is when James, you remember, got a little fired up in his family talk. He basically says, listen, that may be the way it's out there, but it should never be the way it is in here. The church is to be the place where a new culture is created, where the cultural norms out there are toppled in here by the grace of the gospel. You see, the truth is, if you know the gospel, then you recognize the truth that we're all just a bunch of nobodies. We've been saved by somebody. And it's our greatest desire to see that he is exalted by everybody. Every brother and sister has a seat at the table. Then there's family talk on faith. You remember in chapter 2, about verse 14, James shocks us by telling us that demons have faith. That was surprising to read, but James will delineate in that paragraph the differences between dead faith, demonic faith, and dynamic faith. Dead faith is words without works. I signed a card, I prayed a prayer, but I have nothing to do with Christ. That's dead faith. Demonic faith is acknowledgement of truth without acceptance of truth. I can check all the theological boxes. And yet he's really not mine. Then dynamic faith, which is belief plus behavior. See, James wants us to demonstrate that we're not just growing old in the faith, we're growing up in the faith. And sixth, James gives us quite a family talk on our tongue. Didn't he? I don't want to even review that part. But you just know that he talked about speech an awful lot, didn't he? In fact, that's the one subject he talked the most about. It begins at verse 1 of chapter 3, and it actually shows up periodically all the way through chapter 5 and verse 12, where he challenges us to make our yes mean yes and our no mean no. In other words, walk your talk. Live out what comes out of your lips. Seventh, he encouraged his brothers and sisters as he gave a family talk on patience in chapter 5. You remember he took us to the farm. About verse 7, therefore be patient, brothers and sisters. He showed us the patience of a believer by showing us the perseverance of a, of a farmer who does everything he can do and then trusts God to do what only God can do. Patience then is not apathy. Patience isn't somebody saying, well, I'm just praying and I'm going to let God do everything. Patience is actually doing everything you possibly can. Patience is persevering action. And patience, according to his illustration, requires repetition, remember? No farmer ever planted one crop and said, that takes care of me for life. No, you do the right things again and again. You, you, you fertilize your spiritual walk with prayer. You pull the weeds of sin. You, you plant in your heart the seeds of God's truth. You share and live your gospel faith. You serve the body. And then you resist the temptation to say, Okay, Lord, I did that. I'm good. No, the Lord will say, do it again. Do that again. That's the development of biblical patience. 
Lastly, James gives us a family talk on the pursuit of prodigals in verse 19 of chapter 5. The last time brethren appears, my, my brothers and sisters. And he delivers the hard-hitting truth of turning a sinner from his ways, delivering the truth of sin and repentance in love to the wayward, reminding them of the danger of their error that James says could lead to an early death or at least a death-like existence. Not the loss of salvation, but the loss of a full reward that John the Apostle elaborates on in his letters. So you warn them, and when they repent, you forgive them. And with that, almost as quickly as James started, without any introduction, without any conclusion, he finishes. And that's the end of the letter. It's not the end of my sermon. You paid for more than that. So let me go just a little longer. Every once in a while, the archaeologist's spade will unearth something particularly meaningful to biblical text or character. One of the most remarkable discoveries in modern history, discovered in our lifetime, still basically obscured by a culture that doesn't want to take note of the implications was discovered just a few years ago. It was the discovery of an ossuary. The word ossuary simply means, in easier terms, a bone box. looks like a miniature coffin carved out of limestone with a removable lid also carved out of limestone, about that long, about that deep, and about that tall. Once a deceased Jewish person's body had returned to dust after really about a year or no more than two, the family would take the skeleton, polish the bones, and place them in their ossuary. In fact, had our Lord not risen from the dead, after a year or so, he would have been taken off that ledge where they placed him in that cave, and they would have cleaned his bones and put him in an ossuary. Of course, there will never be the discovery of the ossuary of Jesus Christ because he rose from the dead. There are no bones left behind. Regardless of Israel's attempt to sell the story that the disciples had stolen the body, the body was never found and neither were his bones. And there was and is no ossuary of, of Jesus Christ. Now what's even more interesting about the discovery of ossuaries, including the one that was brought into the public eye in the year 2002, is the fact that archaeologists and historians have revealed to us that the use of an ossuary only lasted for a few years. The practice only lasted for about 90 years. It began about 25 years before the birth of Christ, and it ended abruptly at the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So this was kind of a passing fad. This was a practice that did not go back in time for, for centuries. It, it, it lasted only for the briefest period of time when the Jewish people began to, to practice this or observe this. And, and by the way, hundreds of ossuaries have been discovered and identified as they have been unearthed. But then this one particular ossuary was discovered, having been relatively uh, ignored... In fact, it spent centuries in a cave and then still ignored by antiquities dealers until 2002 when a private dealer showed it to a guy named Andre Lemaire, who was a leading paleographer from the University of Paris. And he immediately noted 
the inscription on the ossuary, it was marked unusually with several names, which was out of the ordinary. He immediately sensed the potential genuineness of the inscription. He had personally studied hundreds of ossuaries. This inscription in Aramaic was so faint that it would take a binocular microscope and then later a scanning electron microscope to confirm the genuineness of this stunning engraving brought to light just a few years ago. On the side of this ossuary were carved these words translated to mean or to say, James the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Isn't that great? I mean, I waited a year before I could tell you that. I wanted to get here a lot quicker, but I wouldn't let me. And by the way, this discovery sparked a, a, a firestorm, if, if you can only imagine. If, if this is genuine, the world will have historical evidence outside of Scripture, of James, the son of Joseph, and the brother, by the way, not cousin, but the brother of Jesus, the adopted brother, half-brother, of course. We know from Scripture that Jesus would have been legally adopted by Joseph, bringing him into the line legally of his forefather, David, giving him the right to the throne, which he'll one day sit upon, making James and, and Jude and a couple other brothers and, and at least two sisters his siblings. Now, what's even more stunning is that no ossuary, no ossuary from the first century discovered included the name of anyone other than the deceased and sometimes the name of the father except this one, James, the son of Joseph, and oh, by the way, the brother of Jesus. Oh, that is just so fantastic. Now, I'm fairly convinced that James would not have wanted it to say that. I think he was satisfied to be known in the way he opened his letter. James, a slave of God and of Jesus Christ. That was enough for him. But not for the family, evidently. And probably not for the assembly. As they sat around and figured out, okay, now, now what do we want to put on it? What do we want to carve into it before they placed his bones in the box? He wasn't just any James. They wanted to identify him. You see, this discovery creates then an explosion. And if you think that, you'd be correct. It immediately launched what scholars call the forgery trial of the century which is really interesting because we're only in the first decade of the century and they're, all like, they're already calling it the, the trial of the century. Why? Because they know what it means. They know what's implied. And so the Israeli Antiquities Authority denied immediately its validity and went on record as claiming it to be a forgery and that the name of Jesus must have been added later, centuries later, so that the church could be given what they called something, quote, too perfect. End quote. The government began legal proceedings against the owner of the ossuary. Poor guy for letting it out in the open. The trial would last three years. 
it would involve more than 75 scholars and witnesses, generate over 9,000 pages of documentation, and at the end of legal proceedings, which by the way was October 2008, after more than three years in court, the Israeli judge, and you can imagine the pressure, the Israeli judge ordered the case dismissed lest there be, quote, further embarrassment to Israeli authorities. Because it was so obvious in its authenticity. One newspaper carrying the story reported that the government's case finally collapsed when the government's star witness, the former chairman of Tel Aviv University's Institute of Archaeology, finally admitted upon cross-examination in court that the name Jesus had been carved at the same time as the names Joseph and James. And they date the ossuary to A.D. 63, which is really interesting as well, because Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, said that James was killed in A.D. 62, After lying in state for at least a year, they polished his bones and put them in a box. And then they sat around and said, now what shall we put on it? What shall we carve into it? And they did what is now for us the only historical engraved object with the name Jesus, tying it to James and Joseph, the only one the only one. It was confirmed as authentic. In fact, in the last few years, the ossuary has been displayed in different museums. Here it's displayed in, um, I believe, Toronto, the inscription translated into French. And it brings a couple of thoughts to my mind. Number one, the testimony of James to the world did not end with the ending of his letter. Even his bone box testifies to his Lord. And get this. I mean, think about it. I'm, I'm going to say it again. This is, this ossuary of James marks the only time Jesus' name appeared carved in stone. He can't erase it. Now, I've got to tell you, when I, when I read that, and I've studied this now, and I've thought about it, if I were Jesus, I would have left name tags all over Bethlehem and Jerusalem. I ate here. I walked here. I slept here. I rose from the dead here. I'm coming back and I'm going to stand right here on the Mount of Olives. I I would do that. I would have done that. I remember being in fourth grade. I probably told you this before, but I was told to go stand in the corner of the room. I don't know what I did wrong, probably nothing much, but I was told to go back there and stand by my teacher, Mrs. Jolly, who was not living up to her name that day. I probably had a lot to do with it, but she said, go back there and stand in that corner, and I took out my pen, and I carved my initials, and I I remember thinking, this school's going to remember the injustice of it all. I mean, Jesus Christ could have carved his name everywhere. Think of the injustice, truly. Beyond the record of Scripture, you find very little. You know why? Because archaeological evidence doesn't create faith. It encourages ours. Jesus Christ has chosen to carve his name into your heart. 
and into your transformed life. But every so often, I just love it, every so often, God allows something to surface, some writing from some ancient historian, some scroll bound in a clay pot that some shepherd boy throws a stone in a cave above the Dead Sea and they find the Dead Sea scroll. Some, and, and, and just a few years ago, the ossuary of James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Let me make one more point. The testimony of God's servants ultimately influence far more than the testimony of the world's elite. I found it interesting in my study. I want to show you another picture. I, I found it interesting they did discover another ossuary of significance. This is the bone box, the ossuary of none other than Caiaphas. Caiaphas, if you remember your gospel accounts, was the high priest that condemned Christ. It was in the courtyard of this man's private home where Peter denied the Lord. It was Caiaphas who, when the church was created upon Pentecost, called Peter and, and, and James and John and the others and said, You men be quiet. Don't speak of Jesus again. See how ornate it is? I mean, this is the ossuary of a mover and shaker. This is an important man of influence and significance. He's, he's the leading spiritual mover and shaker of his generation. I mean, this, this is what you'd expect. This is Westminster Abbey style. The ossuary of James, by contrast, is plain and ordinary and simple. It's like the difference between a mahogany coffin and a pine box. By the way, the son-in-law of Caiaphas, a man by the name of Ananus, who became high priest after Caiaphas, basically Caiaphas and his family owned it. But Ananus took advantage of a, a political vacancy when the governor of Palestine died and the other one had not yet arrived, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, informs us that during that political interview, Ananus moved quickly, brought James to trial to recant his belief in his half-brother being the Messiah. James refused. He was found guilty of blasphemy and stoned to death. Before anyone was barely aware of what was going on, James was dead. The Jewish population was so incensed by his actions that King Agrippa removed Ananus from his role as high priest and for the most part the reign of Caiaphas and his family was over and all that was left was an ornate box. But think of it, James is influencing millions of people to this day through his life and letter and legacy and the name and family of Caiaphas and Ananus. If it were not for Scripture, would have long 
been forgotten. Listen, your influence, brothers and sisters, your influence in this life is not finished when you die. And it is not determined by how long the funeral procession is when you do. Your legacy is not the expense of a funeral, whether it's mahogany or pine. In ways we have no idea. And James would have never, ever dreamed this one. But it is the quiet influence of a slave of Jesus Christ, a praying mother, a faithful father, a diligent Sunday school teacher, a children's worker, a deacon, a volunteer, a secretary. It's, it's, it's the legacy of an honest mechanic. Do you know any of those? I do. One goes to this assembly. The legacy of honesty impacts me. It's, it's a caring Doctor who prays with his patients. It's a diligent student on the campus that lives a pure life without knowing the half of it who leaves a legacy for the glory of Christ of whom he or she is a slave. And so we say farewell to James, whose testimony is still not silent. It isn't yet finished, and neither is yours or mine as we grow up and live out our faith as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your spirit moving in the life of this man who was willing, courageous, brave enough to tell us the truth, to give us a family talk of inspired Scripture. We thank you that it reveals all over again how profitable the Word is not just large chunks of it, books or chapters or even verses, but words, words. This has been truth for brothers and sisters who are part of the family. And at the end of it, we... We come away certainly admiring this man who was willing to be known simply as a slave of Christ. Would you make us that today? Would you cause us to be satisfied with nothing more than that? To pursue nothing beyond that. 
servants of Jesus Christ. The accolades he could have listed behind his name, a pillar of the original church, the apostle pastor of Jerusalem's church, a leading theologian, and yet he was quite content with simply being known as a slave of, of Christ. And so today, would you elevate our vision of you, our thoughts, our affections, our sight, elevate it. So no matter what we do, who we are, we remember we're brothers and sisters growing up and living out our faith.